great to have you all here. Thank you for seeking refuge from the cold in this building instead of staying home. That's sometimes a tough decision. So delighted to see you here. And I want to thank Melanie, who's stepped out of the room uh, for toughing out a worship set for us. Um, The Bible talks about sacrifice of praise. I always wonder, well, how much sacrifice is singing praise? But for her, in this case, there was some. So very grateful for that. Well, good morning. I'm Steve Coleman. I'm a member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And I'm welcoming you to our next series on the book of Genesis. We're going to be beginning with the life of Jacob. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis 25. You know, we started the Genesis series about a month ago, 18 months ago. And the point we made then was that all Scripture is telling one story. And so the book of Genesis contains the the basis, the beginning point for a lot of themes that run the entire length of the Bible and that find their conclusion or their summation uh, at the end of the Bible. So we start in the book of Genesis. We have a perfect creation. God provides this uh, earth, the heavens and the earth, and everything is good. We have the fall in chapter 3, where sin and death enter the story, enter the human race. Decay and uh, corruption enters the earth's experience. We have the promise of a Savior. Oh, sin is judged. That sin is judged. Some of that judgment sort of comes right down to the present time for us. And then, uh, then we have the promise of a Savior. God then begins to work in humankind, in people, uh, to bring them back to himself. We see the Israelites, the nation of Israel, established by the end of the book of Genesis. Then we go on to Matthew, and we find out, as this drama unfolds, that the Savior becomes the atoning sacrifice. And then we can follow these themes, as I said, through the book of Revelation, And we have the return of the Savior, sin is judged, death is abolished. We read that that death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire, kind of a curious verse, but death is abolished and we have a new creation and a new earth. So we've got, got this linkage across, we have this overarching story of the Bible that's happening. We have bookends to it, the book of Genesis, the book of Revelation. It's all about our relationship with God. It's all about His work and His attempts to have relationship with us, His pursuit of us. Now, this overarching story is comprised of a lot of little stories. Our lives represent little stories sort of in this overarching story, but some of these stories that have happened in history have been recorded in the Bible, and some of the things that God revealed to His people and wanted communicated to uh, his people, uh, found their way into uh, books of the Bible, recordings. So Isaiah, instead of just prophesying verbally, wrote all these things down. So we have the book of Isaiah. God directed that, God inspired that writing. The same with all 66 books. 
And so we have some stories in there. And these, uh, this large overarching story is reinforced not only through the, the narrative stories, but the law, poetry, prophecy, and the epistles. Every passage in some way contributes to God's big story. So as we look at Scripture today, the portion we have today, we're reading about the great patriarchs in Genesis. Abraham, which we spent most of our last series talking about him, chapter 12 through 24. And we are continuing the story of Isaac, and we're at the beginning of the life of Jacob. So, a little audience participation now. Think. Uh, what do you know about Jacob? What kind of guy was he? Ideas. Pardon me? Strong? Is that what I heard? Strong. I'll take it. We're not going to filter our brainstorming here. Strong. Yes? Mama's boy? I've heard that. Yep. Other ideas? Trickster. Yep. I've heard that. Willing to work hard for a woman. He did that. He did that. Or, or two. <laughs> well, we'll be covering that, that's for sure, when we get there. Yeah, and there's probably, if we, if we took the time, we could probably fill a couple of pages worth of things. And, you know, whenever I have heard messages on Jacob, I usually hear a lot of those things brought up in the introduction and then they go on and talk about the stories, and these things get, get woven together. Um, I'm going to challenge you that uh, I think there's value in just looking at the stories and not starting from conclusions about Jacob and look at the stories in a way that will, um, uh, with fresh eyes. So let's start, take a look at Genesis 25, verses 21 to 23. Now let me just say, we've just had, in the, in the last few verses, sort of a summary of history in terms of genealogies and, and who lived how long and how successful their lives were and so on. So we, we sort of get caught up on this line of the Messiah that's coming through here. And uh, so it, 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 that, that finishes with talking about Isaac marrying Rebekah. Well, then uh, in verse 21, it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. The one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when he gave birth to them. And the boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved 
Esau because he had a taste for gain. But Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked a stew, Esau came in from the field and was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? Jacob said, First, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. In this way, Esau despised the birthright. You know, historical narrative like this section we're in today does bring a challenge for interpreting Scripture. Uh, Why? Well, one thing is, that it is easy to get a little enthusiastic with our interpretation and over-interpret. Sometimes to the point of building a whole biography of a person based on a few narratives. I remember one person speaking on Jacob, and he started and listed about a page worth of, this is Jacob, he's this, he's this, he's this, he's this, he's this, and then started in on the narratives. Um, Sometimes the person is not as important as what's happening in the moment, what the people are saying and doing. Sometimes we get some insight into their thoughts, their intentions, what uh, what's important to them. But often we just get words, we get actions. Sometimes those are what's important and there's something we're supposed to get from the story, not necessarily this person's biography. It's also easy to underinterpret and see the stories nothing more than like morality plays. Um, there are things that are being communicated. And in particular, what's being communicated is this narrative is somehow connecting into this overarching narrative of the Bible. So when you read narratives in the Bible, you need to be haunted by two questions. They should always be on your mind. Of all the things that happened, why record this event? <clears throat> As an example, look in our current story. Uh, Isaac married Rebecca. We learned this a few verses before the portion we read. He was 40 years old. The text says here he was 60 when they were born. And then... They went from infancy to Esau out hunting, Jacob cooking a stew, and uh, and swearing to sell the birthright for the stew. So what do you say, 20, 25, 30? I don't know where you put that. And then in in another short chapter or so, we've got uh, Isaac feeling like he's on his last legs and delivering the the blessing before he dies. So we've got this period of of Isaac's life, 40 years of age, till he almost dies, and it's it's covered by just a couple of stories here in chapter 25 and chapter 27. So of all the things that happened in their lives, why record this event? A second question is, what about this person or event... What is it about the person that throws light on God 
or this overarching story of the Bible? So they're both questions that are poking at the same thing. Uh, we have to read in light of the Bible, what's going on here? And why is it important for us to know? Why did God say, this needs to be recorded here for you and I in the 21st century? With those questions in mind, let's look at the narrative again from... Uh, we're going to look at the narrative again from some different perspectives. Uh, let me walk through the narrative again and... Uh, there's a couple of key things that I wanted to point out. The um, Interesting that Rebecca was barren, so was Sarah. And so God is the one that needed to do something to carry on this line. And we talked about in Genesis how the seed was a key theme. The seed that was promised that was going to crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3. And that's part of what's happening in the book of Genesis in particular. And, uh, and we see it reflected also all the way up into the New Testament with the genealogy of Christ. So the Lord answered his prayer. And then she's got twins, but there's something odd going on. Uh, I don't know what it is she was feeling. That word struggle together is like the word for oppressing or crushing so, you know, I don't know what that looked like. And then the Lord gives this interesting prophecy about the younger, the older serving the younger. We get the same kind of thing in the next generation with Joseph, if you remember. He has that dream about uh, all his brothers being sheaves of wheat. He's a sheaf of wheat, and they're all bowing to him. So we have that happening here in this generation. And interestingly, Isaac is not Abraham's firstborn son either. He's a secondborn son. Firstborn son of Sarah, secondborn of Abraham. Uh, all right, so Esau comes out hairy. Uh, Jacob, not mentioned. So that comes into play, those of you that are very familiar with these, these Bible accounts know that hairiness comes into play. I think it's being introduced there for that. Um, boys grew. Jacob was a peaceful man. Another really interesting Hebrew word. A couple of times it's used for inanimate objects. And I have to tell you, I've forgotten exactly what the twist of meaning is on that. But the other 17 times that it's used of humans, the word is translated in virtually every time as without blemish or blameless or complete. Now, I've looked at translations. Yeah, there's a number of words here. Quiet man, peaceful man. Uh, there was another word, but... The, uh, I, I'm not sure what, went in, what goes into the translator's minds here. Or is this narrative trying to tell us that he was blameless? He certainly displays some behaviors, particularly a little later on, that, um, well, I, a lot of people come to the conclusion, I'm not sure he was trusting God as much as he should have been. So it's just an interesting word there. Esau had a taste for game. Now, you do know 
should remember from the stories of Abraham uh, that there was a lot of raising sheep by these people. We read about it a little later on for Isaac. We read that Jacob has some skills in this area. We'll read that later on. So sheep was sort of the, was what's for dinner when you lived in that time that way. Esau was somebody that was, uh, was not in that mainstream idea. He liked to hunt. Esau liked that game. And then we read uh, Jacob, uh, Isaac loved Jacob. No, Isaac loved Esau. And then we read Rebekah loved Jacob. Not the best parenting approach. And we'll find that leads to some problems later on as well. Esau said, gave it in case, look, I, the, the birthrights of no use to me. But Jacob pressed the point, swear to me. So it's like that stick a needle in my eye thing, you know, when we were growing up. It's like, no, don't just tell me that's true. Are you will- How's that thing start, stick a needle in my eye? Never heard it? There you go. Let me inform you all. Cross my... Pardon me? Pardon me, Scott? Hope to die was enough. Hope to die. (laughs) How about on the street? (laughs) Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Then you were serious when you were fourth grade. Yeah. For adults, we hear a little different way. On the grave of my mother. You know, I mean, this is, it's going a step beyond, yes, I'll do it. This will come up later, but I just want to point it out while the text is up here. Jacob gave Esau the bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Notice the, the sort of cadence that brings. Notice the focus of the narrator, the writer of this who's narrating this story, what, what they're just observing. Esau's about this, then he does this, then he does this, then he goes on his way. So it's, uh, it's a lot of immediate action. Okay, let's look at this from some different perspectives. Again, audience participation time. Okay, what, what, were, what did God do in this story? What were God's intentions? What did he do? Maybe by looking at these perspectives, we'll be able to pull together some idea of the main storyline. Ideas? Just have a thought. Good. I like thoughts. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, good. Yep, yeah. Okay, God was in control of barrenness and not barrenness. So he brought a situation where Isaac needed to pray, which Isaac did. Good. What else did God do, or what, was God, what were God's intentions here? I don't know if it was God's intention. Yes. But by Esau selling the birthright, um, it changed the whole lineage of the Jewish people. Esau selling the birthright does change... Yeah, it does change the lineage. God's not mentioned in that part of the story. We, we know 
behind the scenes, God's always at work. But where does God appear in this story, and what, what is it that he does? Yes. Exactly what God said. Yeah. He did it and it happened. Yeah, so he set up the deal. He answered the prayer by giving children. He gave twins. And then, because of space on the slide, he decided the older will serve the younger. Then we don't read about God anymore in the rest of the narrative. He was there working, but as far as why was it recorded this way? Why is it in the scripture here? this way. You know, in Romans 9, Paul quotes Malachi, just to put a, a fine edge on this. And he says, Paul's context is he's talking about Israel. He's talking about God's choices in picking Israel, God's choices in opening things up to the Gentiles, and so on. But he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So it was God's purpose to pass the line of Messiah through Jacob, turning things around, changing, the, changing what would have happened normally, uh, so that the line of Messiah went through Jacob, not Esau. And as we talked about earlier in Genesis, again, that seed, we've seen it tracked down through the generations. There's a deliberate move each way, and God says it's Jacob. All right, uh, Isaac, what did he do in this passage? Anybody quickly? He prayed. He prayed, good. He prayed for a child. This is what I got from it. He prayed for a child and he loved Esau. That's what he did in this narrative. Uh, Rebecca, what did Rebecca do? She requested guidance from the Lord and she loved Jacob. Now we can think... Is, is it she loved Jacob? We read that Esau loved wild game. Is it that Rebecca kept thinking about that promise? We're not told. Uh, what did uh, Jacob do? Jacob, well, he, he grabbed Esau's heel on the way out. We read he hung around the tents. And there's a lot of nuances in this story, a lot of layers that we could spend a few hours sort of teasing out. Our focus this morning is we're trying to figure out what does this thing contribute to all of Scripture. Uh, but he lived in tents, dwelled in tents, and then he bought the birthright from Esau. What did Esau do? Ideas? Okay. Esau. Pardon me? Sold his birthright. And he hunted. He sold the birthright to Jacob. He hunted, yes. But he also did this. This seems to be the significant piece. So Esau is the only person in this text whose actions are accompanied by a commentary. The very last sentence. In this way, Esau despised his birthright. It's the only character that has such a commentary attached. 
You know, think about the spising. Uh, the writer of 1 Samuel uses the same idea when he's talking about Hophni and Phinehas. Now, these were the sons of Eli right there. And remember, that's the time Samuel grew up in the temple. But in chapter 2, Hophni and Phinehas, as, as priests under Levi, the, chief, the, the, the head priest, um, they were, uh, there's a certain way they were supposed to get compensated as priests. They were rigging the system so they got better stuff and more stuff. Uh, and what it says here is a man of God comes to Eli, confronts him about what his sons are doing, and he says, um, why do you kick at my sacrifice? He's speaking God's words. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel, rigging the system. Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Despising, holding in contempt treating lightly something that is weighty, something that is important, and, and just being flippant with it. Esau's situation, in case we were wondering, if that parallel isn't enough, he, the writer of Hebrews makes it crystal clear in chapter 12 there, and he says, Pursue peace with all men and sanctification. See to it that there is no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For if you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and was found, and he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Describes Esau as immoral or godless in making this choice. When Esau repented, he was repenting from his choice because he had already crafted his future. He was facing it. No blessing. And lots of regret then, but he missed his window of opportunity. He blew the choice. By the time Esau changed his mind, his opportunity was gone. So let's step back from the text and see if we can get the main idea of the story. How does this story begin? Well, God directed the birth of twins. And with it, gave the prophecy, the older would serve the younger. How does it end? Esau makes a decision that indicated he despised or thought lightly of or wasn't appreciating the importance of his birthright. Swapped it for a single meal. So we have in this story a story about how both God and man were involved in the seed, the line of the Savior, and the decision about where it went. God by prophecy, Esau by action. The beginning of the story, the end of the story, are talking about the same thing uh, using two different characters to do that. What about Isaac's actions? Well, they bring new, there's part of this nuance to the story. There's layers to the story. There's some depth we could go to in this story 
For this morning, we're not. We're focusing on the bigger picture. And so, uh, and so that isn't really helping us, going to help us understand the primary reason this was written and its role in the overarching picture. The same with Rebecca and even Jacob. What's really going on here is that God establishes his plans and people make choices. God establishes his plans and people make choices. One of the theological things this brings up for us, we're not going to deal with it this morning, is, wait a minute, so God said, I'm planning this, uh, so does that mean Esau had no chance, there was no a reasonable opportunity here, that he was locked into a fatalistic system. And well, that, that study's occupied scholars for a long, long time, and we can discuss that. The point is, this narrative says both are true. God establishes plans. His plan was, it's not the older, it's the seed's going to go through Jacob. And lo and behold, Isaac, living his life, with full opportunities to make decisions, he made a decision. And in doing so, despised the birthright, said the things of God, the, the, the passing on of this line through the family, taking that leadership role, that spiritual role, uh, is not for me. You know, Julie, uh, at the wedding she's attending this weekend, was saying that the... Uh, the person doing the wedding, uh, talked about a soccer coach he had when he was a youth. Not soccer, that's hockey. (laughs) And his coach would always say, (laughs) it's colder, yeah, shoot long, shoot short. That was his advice to his players, the way they could remember it. And what he meant by that was, always keep in mind the goal and the possibility of taking a scoring shot when you have the puck. Don't just always focus on the defender immediately in front of you and where you might pass the puck. Don't be consumed with the short, with, i got to dump it off here, or maybe he's in position. But think, always keep in mind, long, long shot. Can I shoot for the goal? Do I have an opening here? He had the goal, he was trying to tell his junior players a simple way of Remember, keep the goal in mind. Make decisions now in light of what our ultimate goal is, which is to score a point. Shoot long, shoot short. Just like these hockey players, Esau fell in the trap of only concerning himself with the immediate. Look how the text describes his actions. He took the meal, sat down, he ate it, he rose, went on his way. Uh, that's what he was worried about in the immediate. With his focus on that, he didn't even consider God, didn't even consider God's perspective, what God's plans might be. Don't know if he was aware of that prophecy, but he certainly didn't act in a way that demonstrated this was a value to him. He only thought of the short term, himself, today, now, and he made his choices based on that. Well, what God wants for me on Monday and for the rest of the week and for the rest of my life to keep the long shot in mind. We we talk about that in terms of do everything with eternity 
God's perspective in view. God has a plan, and the lessons from the Old Testament, the imperatives in the New Testament are all encouraging us to live for Him, to choose Him over and over. The overarching story of the Bible is God set mankind up perfectly, humankind fell, God set off on this this plan to rescue humanity, to bring us salvation, to to, to call us back to Himself. How this point, how this story fits into that, we always have opportunities every day to do things uh, that have eternity in view, that have God as its center, that comes from our heart of worship to God. The worst thing we can do is not have that long shot in our mind. Uh, Because we face too many choices each day. And if we are not deliberate at thinking in terms of that, then we are tempted, we're pulled. uh, As as James says, we just finished that book, but we're dragged away by our own lusts and enticed. Esau couldn't wait to get that meal. So in my prayers this week, I'm going to wake up praying, Lord, help me to keep eternity in view today. And hopefully in each situation, how can I claim this moment for God? What do I need to do now that's in light of eternity? That's a lesson we can get from this passage. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for your word. Thank you for... Uh, for your pursuit of us. Help us. Our faith is weak. Our passion is low. And we, we have our good times. We have our bad times. We ask that you'll help us to uh, keep you in our minds or thoughts, that that might become a habit, that we might, even in things that seem small and insignificant, um, think with eternity in view, and make a decision that way. We thank you so much in your name. Amen.